Welcome to this Food Thing podcast. This is the place where we talk about our relationship with food, whether it is friend or foe, easy or less so, and how it affects our behavior. Here's today's episode. Welcome back to this Food Thing podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by Leon Arts. Leon is a restaurateur, chef, author, entrepreneur, and TEDx speaker. Leon began his career in fine dining and then launched his own restaurant before moving to London to set up a fine food wholesale company. A breakthrough experience in Leon's early 40s changed his life and he set up three charities helping others. In 2020, Leon founded Compassion London, realizing the pandemic would mean hunger for many Londoners. Leon is passionate about feeding people, not only as a chef, but in a visionary, exemplary, let's change the world and feed everybody way. Leon now heads up Felix's Kitchen at the Felix Project London, cooking up to 5,000 meals every day out of surplus food for those who need support. Leon, welcome to this Food Thing podcast. Hi, Gemma. Hi. What an introduction. You've done so much. Well, thank you. When I, you know, when this happens to me, when and you get introduced and I always think, is that me? But yeah, you know, when you get older, there's more stuff you've done. Yeah, you do, don't you? And also you, you're, you're more capable of doing such things and, and being of service. Yes, and, you know, sometimes you wonder that as well. Uh, you know, when you see all these amazing things young people do nowadays, um, which really inspires me, to be honest. So, uh, yeah, you know, we can I always... Think, yeah. No, I just I just think every, every younger generation comes in a, a sort of pre-tuned, just yeah. a little bit more capable to experience the yeah. world that that we're all going to take on. I read a quote the other day. What was it? It was something about, um, yeah, if you think you've only lived, if you think humans have only lived once, this was a channeled quote, um, then think again, otherwise we'd be stuck in the Stone Age, yeah. which I thought was really clever. Yeah, what I really like is a quote um, by Buckman Fuller where he says, our children are our parents in universe time. Yeah. And uh, meaning that, we, you know, we learn so much from our children and it could be your own children or young people in general. And I 100% agree with that. I do too. Absolutely. Let's Let's start. How would you describe your relationship with food? Would you describe it as a friend or as a foe? Oh, as a friend, definitely, without a doubt. Yeah. Okay. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, you know, I was telling a friend this last week when we went for a walk. And, um, you know, my biggest dream as a child when I was, you know, in you know eight and, and in my teens, but I remember being like seven, eight, lying on my bed. And my biggest dream was imagine you could eat as much as you wanted and you wouldn't feel full, you wouldn't put on weight. I mean, as, as ch- my mom was an amazing cook. She not definitely not a chef, but she cooked something different every day for us. She loved it. Okay. And um, so we were very spoiled in that sense. And um, yeah, you know, I I was overweight as a child, so you know, I, I my dream was just to keep eating. So when you just to talk about that a little bit, that's very interesting. When you when you were full as a child. Did you just want to keep filling yourself up or did you naturally stop once you were full despite being overweight? No, I, I, my dream was to keep, imagine that you could keep eating. First of all, I loved food so much. Only later I realized that was comfort eating. Um, and my mom was a comfort eater as well. Uh, luckily, you know, I managed to solve that as, as I got older. Um, no, I, I, you know, I just loved food. So I, I um, loved eating and um 
yeah, it wasn't that I think, oh, I'm full, I stop now, it's better to stop. That realisation came later. Oh, I see. What were you comforting yourself about and what was your mum comforting herself about? <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, and of course these things are on hindsight, but I, I was definitely insecure as a boy and, you know, also in my teens. So you think you're not good enough. You think, you know, I, I remember thinking, oh, I'm, I'm just Leon from Maastricht. You know, that's the town in the Netherlands where I'm from. Yeah. And, um, um, you know, trying to prove yourself, trying to feel validated in this world. Although at that young age, you just just be playing. Um, yeah, for me, it was about that. So, and I thought, and I remember my mom, my mother was exactly the same. Um, she was like, you know, she, she, we used, I remember her cooking all the time, but I also remember my parents had their own business. And, you know, in the 70s, that, you know, being an entrepreneur wasn't as, as common as it is nowadays. And when there was challenges, my mom, uh, I remember her saying to us, uh, you know, in, in the dialect, which we spoke at home, or if I can't eat anymore. So when there was a problem, I remember her hand going into the cupboard, taking something to eat and, you know, finding comfort in that. And I, I'm, I'm the eldest of the children and I definitely took that over from her. Okay. Was that, um, it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? But was that her main way of showing her love? for you oh, no. and the rest of you? No, that was probably showing, trying to show love to herself. Right. Um, you know, cooking for us, yes, that that wasn't the main way, but that was one of the ways. I had a very loving mom. I became out of a loving family and loving grandparents. Uh, on, on my dad's side, a very big family. All in, on that side of the family, food was a massive thing. And one of my earliest memories is having, you know, I, I'm the eldest of four. My dad is the eldest of nine. So, you know, on that side of the family, there was, you know, dinners at my grandparents that, you know, that was uh, three tables, big tables um, next to each other in, in a long row and um, a feast, you know, every time when we had lunch there. And um, only years later, I really saw it as a feast and it used to go on for ages. We used to have four courses, which, you know, in those days, when did you ever have that at home? Yeah, and um only late, years later, I learned that they made soup out of the chicken. The chicken they used in a pastry case in a creamy sauce. That so you had two starters, and the main course was something like uh, veal tongue, which was a local delicacy, which is not very popular nowadays. But yeah, uh, you know, it didn't cost anything and cooked well. It was actually a delicacy, and uh, um, so but it didn't cost a lot, and they really stretched the food to accommodate all. You know, there was like twenty five people around the table, and and as the grandchildren grew more. Um, so, yeah, that's one of my earliest memories. So food has always been part, but it was definitely a loving family. So the scene was set, really, for your future career. Yeah. I want to talk about that, but I also want to ask, um, and I don't want to get too distracted, so if I do get distracted, can you pull me back, please? Yeah. When was when okay. was it? So, okay, you, you, you know, you go into, a, you become a chef. When was it that you learned that you didn't want to feel so full that you didn't want to eat as much. Was that significant or did it just naturally occur? Oh, that's a good question. When did that occur? Um, well, I think when, when you're overweight, which I was as a, as a child, it never it's never comfortable. You're very aware of it. and uh, But, you know, your, your mind where, you know, the, the voice in your head, that's a better way of explaining it, saying, oh, you know, you feel uncomfortable, you feel hard done by, or you can't run as 
hard as the other boys are. You know what? I just eat a bit more. That makes me feel good. Well, it only makes you feel good for a few yeah. minutes. But um, so it's never comfortable. And, you know, although you might portray that, I only speaking for myself, but, but I might portray that to the outside world, but I wasn't. It, you know, deep down you wanted to be slimmer and better at sports and yeah. things. And, I mean, I always had a lot of friends. That was never the thing. And I think, you know, when you get into your late teens, when you become more aware of your body and, you know, um, you know maybe, um, you know, you get interested in girls and things like that, that you um, start thinking about you losing weight and, you know, then you talk to your parents. And, uh, you know, I wasn't unhealthy, but, yeah, it's not a healthy way of living. So, um, yeah, I can't remember. I went to one or other um, natural doctor who helped me lose weight by cutting out some foods. Um, so, yeah, that was, I think, late teens. Okay. I'm actually, I thought of something when you were speaking just now about the, um, the family around the table and eating four courses, which, yeah, in the 70s, mm-hmm. unheard of. And I was thinking about your family celebrating the comfort from food because I come from a family where... I think, well, the men were allowed to, the men were allowed to overeat, but they were all quite skinny, but certainly (laughs) I didn't, I wasn't really allowed to overeat and my mum eats like a sparrow. So, um, you know, it was frowned upon. It would be seen as being greedy, taking too much. Oh, you've had enough. Uh, don't eat too much. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? Our different upbringings. Yes. And I come from a, so, um, you know, I, I'm not religious, but I come from a Roman Catholic background in the south, south of the Netherlands. Um, so, you know, and I, I've said this in my TEDx talk, for example, um, the, um, the first thing we would be asked, and also that part of the Netherlands used to be French. They call it the Burgundy of okay. the North. And um, the first thing in those days, people would ask you when you ring someone's doorbell to, to, to visit someone to go and collect something. And, you know, I still hear my grandmother saying that. Um, yeah, it's, it, I say it in the diet and I'm young, well, to get eat. And that means, would you like something right. to eat? And um, yeah, and you take that with you. You never forget that. And so, um, you know, I used to go and the other grandchildren only later on, I find that out years later when there was one or other anniversary um, that you used to go to your grandparents after birthdays because, you know, they used to cook a lot of uh, pies <laughs> and sweet things and there was always left over. So sort of by accident, inverting commas, you pass your grandparents one or two days later because there was enough cake. That's and, uh, you know. Yeah, so yeah, well, would you like something to eat? That was the, and at home as well, you know. It, I never understood when I first moved to the UK and you had to go and collect something somewhere or you had to go and see someone, they they wouldn't offer you a drink or something to eat. That's not how I grew up. And right. uh, that's still, I think, food is so important. So, what that, a culture yeah. shock. You see, if someone came to our door, yeah. we talk about how was your journey and we talk about the roads and then we talk about the weather. <laughs> yeah. No, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't talk about anything till there was some food on the table. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, okay. So you went to see a natural doctor in your teens. Um, excluded a few foods. That was clearly that wasn't an issue for you because I'm assuming you started to feel better about yourself and it was e- easier to yeah. be in your body. Would you say that? Yes. Oh, yes. Definitely. Okay. Um, yeah. Because um, w- was that kind of it? Was that the, the switch to where you just started to 
feed yourself a bit differently? Yes, because, you know, you when you don't have, you know, all that gluten in you or sugar or, whatever, or fat or whatever it is, you know, um, but of course, every addiction we have, whether that's food or alcohol or mm-hmm. whatever, um, it's only a short-term fix, so it's never a solution. That's why when I was very young, I thought, well, imagine I can, because uh, I felt well when I was eating, and uh, um, I imagine you can keep eating and you never feel yeah. full. Um, that's all, but it's only a short-term fix, and that, you know that doctor and also how my mom and my grandmother were was very much you know talking to us about you know that voice in our head and you know that we're good enough and things like that. Um, so yeah, that's actually the change. The change is not just cut, cutting out some food, but making it a lasting change within within yourself. That you know, believing in yourself, seeing that you can do something well. Also, what really happened is, so I be, I uh, the first time I ever was in a ki- professional kitchen was when I was nineteen, and that was kind of an accident. Yeah. And because um, there was no plan, I, I was nineteen, and I I didn't even know how to boil an egg. My mom, like I said, is an amazing cook, but. I wasn't interested in before in cooking before that. I was interested ah, in eating. And my f- I wondered if she taught you to cook, but clearly not. No, okay. no, no. Later on, we we spoke a lot about it and we cooked together, but not not before I was nineteen because I wasn't okay. interested. And um, but you know, I find cooking, and there was something in me which told me that I could be number one in that, that I could be really good in it. And uh, I, you know, so I became really passionate about cooking. Really quickly worked in you know, taught restaurants and was pushing myself. And that gave me a lot of self-confidence and self-esteem and belief in myself. And of course, that helped with, you know, eating better as well. Because I became aware of the food I was foods I was eating that they weren't very good for me and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, finding that, finding cooking at, and believing in myself, I finally find a path how I could prove myself in the world. That really helps. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because being in a professional kitchen, um, being a chef, and actually, no, any job in a professional kitchen is relentless, very hard work. Yeah. And I think the old um, stereotype of an unhealthy, let's say, overweight chef, because it's always been, well, for for decades, centuries, it was seen as a sign of wealth and that you're doing really well, particularly for men, Mm -hmm. that you were bigger. I think that's changed, hasn't it? Because I'm thinking about all the chefs in the sort of past 20, 25 years since the rise of the super chef and all the TV programs. And those guys, when you guys, I know you're not in the kitchen anymore, but you have to really look after yourself just to be able to withstand the rigors of the job. Oh, yes, you have. And, you know, some chefs, they do that nowadays, you know, a lot of chefs, they they train a lot, they run or cycling or, you know, the gym, whatever they do. Um, they they do they eat very healthy, but on the other hand, there's a, a big contingent of chefs, especially in the past, who used to drink a lot, eat very unhealthy, uh, you know, worked very long hours. Luckily, that's changing as well, because um, you know, in the in the in the top end restaurant world, I've always said you can't become a top chef if you don't put in the hours, meaning 16 hour days, in order to get the experience. Luckily, that's changing, but all those things didn't help. Um, they, I mean. In my case, that was a little bit different, but because um, I had that earlier. But you know, yeah, unfortunately, a lot of people were um, 
sort of escaping in in in, in alcohol drugs yeah. you know hard work of course and then alienating themselves from their friends and family of course that's an escape yeah. as well i have all, we're just going to go for a quick break i've always enjoyed that little story from tom carriage and he used to drink a pint of negroni after his shift in the evening yeah. we're going to take a quick break Hi, welcome back to This Food Thing Podcast. I'm here with Leon Arts. Where were we, Leon? We're in the kitchen. You've gone into yeah. a kitchen at 19. You've started to work your way up. Was it a Michelin star kitchen when you you went into? And the first one mm. wasn't. The first one wasn't. The second one was. But the first one was, a, you know, one of these really uh, old, well, nowadays, old-fashioned French restaurants, kind of, you know, bistro, brasserie. Yeah high volume, uh, everything was done classically. So a, a great way to learn. Um, and um, yeah, from there, I went to my first uh, Michelin what's star it, restaurant, which was also my what's it, Sorry to interrupt. What's it like working in a Michelin star kitchen? Because the standards are so high and you have to hit them every time, don't you? Yes. And I was actually thinking about that this yeah. morning, that there's a lot of beauty in that mm -hmm. as well. I, I had a, sh uh, uh, a conversation with one of the people here in the Felix kitchen and he said, Leon, I want to learn. And I said to him, yeah, but learning is not doing different dishes every day. Learning is doing the same dish over and over again and get that, you know, when you're in a Michelin star kitchen, it's about mastery, mastering the art of cooking something to the highest level every time. And let's say you cook a pigeon, trying to cook that pigeon better every time when you cook a pigeon, that might be that same pigeon five times in a night, that might be 30 times, whatever it is, but every time give you all to, and then you sort of start to understand the quality of it. You learn that a pigeon is not always the same. So, you know, you start to feel that and, and make it better every time that, and then besides that, you have the creativity of making different dishes and creating a new sauce, which you do every so often or a new dish with pigeon or, or beef, whatever it is. That's what, what it's about. And that, there's so much fun and uh, in that and um, trying to perfect things. And I always really enjoyed that bit. Okay. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, no, and it also teaches you um, tenacity and resilience and, well, you become an expert, yeah. don't you? So how long did you stay as a chef? I want to move on to when you, um, in your early 40s, were you chefing from 19 to your early 40s? Yeah. I stopped, no, no, I stopped chefing when I was uh, 34, so in the year And then you moved to London. Okay. Yes. And you had the fine food company. And that's correct. Okay. Yeah. Just briefly, why did you stop? Why did you stop being a chef? Because um, I wanted to do something else. I felt I had proven what I wanted to prove. Um, you know, from a young boy, I always thought that, you know, when you're good at something, then people like you and you will be popular. I will learn later that's not exactly the case, but I was always looking to be number one in something. And then with chefing, I found that. And then when I thought with chefing that I proved it, I was working in Amsterdam uh, the year 2000. I thought it's, it's time to do something else. And... Um, I then came to London. I had an English wife and started a fine food wholesale business. So we just moved from Amsterdam to London uh, because I had an idea and I started my business. Was it difficult to give up being a chef or were you, did you feel relieved? No, I, I was ready to give up. Um, yeah, I, I felt I achieved what I could I wanted to achieve. Okay. Okay. Were you suffering from burnout? No, no not then. No, definitely not. 
Okay. So, okay. So you've got your fine food wholesale company and then you get to your early forties. Um, what happened to shift you onto your new path with food? So, um, that this is 2007. I done my fine food company for six years. I, um, we grow really quickly. We went from myself starting it with a suitcase, moving to London and knocking on doors to 25 staff, a purpose-built unit being number one in our niche industry, having wow. a few, you know, selling to all the top London restaurants and some outside London in those days. Um, and we were doing really well. But, you know, in 2006, seven, my business really started struggling. A few things started to go wrong. And I... Um, I was at an event in Bali where um, one of these kind of half spiritual, half business where they first break you down to build, to build you up. Yeah. And at the, the guy who ran it was also my personal mentor at the time. And um, so I was sitting in the middle of Bali in this beautiful um, resort where, you know, in the palm trees, we were having dinner the first evening. And my the guy who organized it came and stand behind me. And he, there was like 20 people, all people I, I respected a lot. And uh, the thing is, I could only see my challenges. And uh, the guy, Roger was his name. He stood behind me and said, Leon is always, already very successful. He was a top chef in the Netherlands. And then he moved to London, started this business selling to Gordon Ramsay and, you know, the Le Frosch and all these restaurants. Yeah. And I sat there and I, my voice in my head went, uh, this was quiet. I didn't say it out loud. I said, stop it, stop it. I'm not successful because I could only see the challenges my business was facing at the time. And, you know, that happens right. with business. It yeah. goes up and down. Yeah. And um, um, I, I realized I needed to step out, but I, I thought I couldn't. I had 25 staff, responsibilities to the restaurants, responsibilities to suppliers. You know, we're talking, it was a three and a half million turnover business. So we, you know, in six years, we did really well, but wow. I wasn't seeing that. And anyway, during that event where there was 12 business people from all over the world, also very successful in totally different industries. And I thought, wow, I don't belong here. I, I'm not good enough to be here. And I want something to be there. And um, it was the event was to to make a social enterprise globally, and they would you know they would help you make that plan, but basically prepare yourself. And I just felt that I didn't. I totally froze, and I felt I don't belong here. And then wow. I did a sort of a clearing with a guy who was there as well, and uh, I said to him, Dave, can we have a chat? You know, this is going on for me, and I was totally stuck. My, I could hardly say anything. My my throat was totally. Uh, um blocked and um um i um yeah anyway he helped me clear that and i realized and especially on the way home i realized i got nothing to prove because i've been proving myself all my life first i wanted to prove that i could be a good a great chef then i wanted to prove that i could be a good businessman and i said in that plane i thought why do i you know break everything down i know i can achieve whatever i want and uh, so I was 41, and on the plane home, I decided I want to be me again. I just Leon, that's more than enough. And I came home and I said to my wife, we need to stop with the business. And she understood, and the only thing she said was yes. So uh, six weeks later, we closed the business. And um, Wow. Can yeah. I ask you a question? This yeah. is a personal question. I'm fascinated about this block in your throat. Yeah. Was that because you were full up? You were done? Yes, I was done. So 
Um, I, yeah. you know, we talk a lot about mental health issues at the time. I don't think I've mm. ever had any, and I don't think I, yeah, probably that would have been my burnout. I never thought about it at the time, and I right. haven't really thought about it as a burnout after. But yeah, I was done, and you know, I have a lot of energy, and I know I can create a lot. And if I would have made the decision to keep the business, then I probably could have done a lot with it but it was and I still remain to say that that was the best decision of my life I lost a lot of money stepping out of the business but I'm because I'm very happy about that because from that moment on I could be myself and that's really what I've been working on besides the project I've done just to be myself because that's more than enough and um, I felt that I wasn't Mm. myself I think also when you have that moment and realize you're not uh living living honestly not being authentic it's a massive wake-up yes. call isn't it and oh, it's yeah. amazing when you have it not everyone has it but it's it's terrific when it happens sitting in Bali with these people you respect and not being able to speak almost that was excruciating you know wow. now I can laugh about it but I definitely yeah. did it at the time <laughs> yeah. yeah no I hear you what an amazing moment yeah. so okay so you've come home your wife has said yes no problem let's sell the business did you have a plan? No, I rang my uh, f- financial director who was part-time with us and I saw him a day. So I came home on a Sunday. I saw him on the Tuesday and he said, Leon, let's get the business sales ready. Give me a year, year and a half and you get so much. And I said to him, no, I, it's it's enough. I don't want to do that. I can't do that. And um, so instead of getting a lot of money for the business, we hardly had anything. We make sure that all our staff had new jobs, that all our restaurants kept the supplies going. So I gave my my suppliers to other um, suppliers here in London. So all that was sorted. And um, yeah, it was time for me. You know, sometimes the universe pushes you to make these decisions and I'm still very happy about that. Um, so I, I was done, yeah. Okay. I, I, this this whole thing, sorry, I um, get a bit obsessive. This whole thing about the, the lump in the throat and the throat chakra mm-hmm. and not being able to yeah. say what you want to say. It's just brilliant. That's okay. I'm going to move on. I'm going to move on. So um, what was the, did you set up three charities at the same time? No, later. That was later. So um, I... Um, I, start, I stopped the business in 2007, and, and, well, it ended up being the beginning of October 2007. My first charity I started in 2009, because, you know, like I said to you earlier, I wanted to be me again. And then I started working on a social business idea, which turned out to be a charity, which I launched in 2009. And uh, that was to help feed children in developing countries, so by giving them a meal in a school, because they would go to school. And um that was my first idea I launched after that. That was the first charity. So yeah, I had I needed some time. Okay, okay. Um, and on the back of that, what came next? So the, the second charity was, um, so I did the first one for five years, till 2014. Then that came to a natural end and I learned a lot. We worked with the World Food Programme and, you know, uh, it was an amazing experience, but it was my first in, the, in that world. And yeah. then... Um, 2015, um, I was just doing some consultancies and I wrote a book and everything. And um, um, all of a sudden, the the refugee crisis hits our shores. And I was watching the news, such like all of us, 
thinking, where do all these people come from? And, you know, this was in the summer of 2015 when we saw the images of the Greek Isles, but yeah. also in Calais, in, you know, in France, this, this camp yeah. was building. And, um, then I, and I wanted to do something. I was thinking, I got some time, shall I go to Greece, but what shall I do? And I didn't have an answer till out of the blue, um, a friend, someone who I met only once, but we became Facebook friends, that said to me, messaged me and said, Leon, uh, we are thinking of setting up a kitchen in the jungle, the camp in Kelly. Would you like to help? And um, so I said, Jonathan, yeah, of course. But then uh, this was all on Facebook. And uh, then I sent him a message back because when we met, we we spoke. He had a challenge in his life where we, as you know, two men spoke about and you know drank yeah. a cup of tea. And yeah. <laughs> um, I th realized he doesn't know your story. So I, uh, that didn't happen that evening when we met. So I messaged him back, said, Jonathan, did you know that I used to be a chef? And he goes, no, I didn't. So we go, ha, ha, ha. And uh, two weeks later, I land in Kelly from, from, I went on a ferry and then drove into um, this camp. And it felt like going back into the Middle Ages. Oh, it was horrible. Mm -hmm. And um, I we thought, so we, we put a marquee there, we put some burners on the ground and we thought we we're going to cook 200 meals a day together with the refugees and then in a few weeks this is over when the government's got their act together of course that never happened and um i then after a week or so we i was walking through the camp and you know with tears in my eyes and the despair and all that and the smell and I thought I want to feed everyone. Not just, by that time we were feeding eleven hundred meals a day, and we couldn't do more than that. Yeah, there was about six, seven thousand people in the camp that was hungry, and I thought I want to feed everyone. So, and you know, yeah, I heard this voice in my head: just keep doing. And I went home because I, um, I came back to London and um, started thinking, what can I do? And I realized, well, I, I used to be chef. I had this wholesale business. Everyone can cook there. I can get enough food to the camp. So I started organizing that. And within two months, we were feeding all the 10, 11,000 people in the two camps, which were there. And there was from vans going there, people in cars. A lorry was going every week with food. And we had this system where we gave the refugees all the food they needed to cook for themselves. There was still also, with, you know, some kitchens, which, you know, I helped uh, stocking and, and tens and tens of volunteers. It wasn't just me, but I was leading it. And that was the most amazing experience, which I did for a year. And I always say it's the most beautiful thing I've ever done. And at the same time, the, the most difficult. It just sounds extraordinary. I understand that you already had your systems in place and you knew the business and you had yeah. all your contacts, but you just rocked up, put some burners on the ground, set up a marquee and started cooking. And from that, you were feeding everybody. Yeah. And like I said, there was lots of people with, you know, yeah, great people that. with amazing hearts helping. And, yeah. you know, we, you know, yeah, you're spiritual and talk, you know, we, we, what you do is manifestation and mm -hmm. but their manifestation was just instantly. So, you know, um, so you tune in and you do what you're guided to do. And we, you know, what I really liked about doing Keller was it was tough. It, you know, that's, that's no two ways about it for many, many reasons, but, um, there was it was an elite. Well, the government deemed it an illegal camp because they said this is, doesn't be it doesn't belong here. It shouldn't be here. You know, ridiculous reasons in my uh, view. But so there was also there was police on the outside which were throwing tear gas and rubber bullets all the time. But in the camp there was no rules, so you know you could 
um, set up things, do things, which you know in here, in you know in London is a bit more difficult. And and you know many rules and regulations are very good. Don't get me wrong, but that was yeah. also part of the beauty. We could do stuff. Um, so yeah, it was a very mixed experience. But you just followed your heart, and um, yeah, I was guided yeah. to be there. And yeah, I call it the universe gave me all the tools in order to do it. I'm I'm with you all the way there. Is it, are the kitchen still running? No, there is actually still a kitchen there in a warehouse, which set, was set up by friends of mine. Uh, it's called the Refugee Community Kitchen. There is still hundreds of volunteers. The camps are gone. They demolished them in 2016. Uh, it's very, very, it's even tougher now. Um, mm. So, yeah, they still cook, I don't I think hundreds of meals every day with with volunteers and they have to distribute them via via fans. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Welcome back to this Food Thing podcast. I'm here with Leon Arts. And we've just been talking about Leon setting up the uh, kitchen and see, and feeding everybody in the camps in Calais in 2015. Yes, talk to me. Tell us about the Felix Kitchen, the Felix Project, which I know was set up in honour yeah. of a young boy, 14-year-old boy called That's Felix correct. by his father. Yes, yeah, so yeah, the Felix Project, which yes. I'm part of now, uh, it's an amazing charity. It's London's largest food sur- redistribution and food surplus redistribution network. And um, yeah, it's an amazing organisation which is set up by uh, Justin and Jane, who are the parents of uh, Felix. Felix was a 14-year-old boy who unfortunately passed very young. And in in, in his memory, mm-hmm. Jane and Justin mm-hmm. are also amazing entrepreneurs. And uh, uh, Felix loved his food. Yeah. So, you know, his, his mom always tells okay. the story that when, you know, when she cook and there's a sausage left, then he would have that last sausage. And so he, because he loved eating okay. and um, he was always surprised that um, um, there's so much in a place like London that so many people had to go hungry. And he saw that at, when he went to football matches of speaking to other boys who had no breakfast and things like that. And um, so in his memory, they started right. the Felix Project because they realized there was a lot of surplus food, surplus food, you know, from businesses, which, you know, for many, many reasons, food is surplus. Most of that also, if you would come to our kitchen, to our depots, the quality of the food is unbelievable. It's really, is, it's not the rotting salads, which you sometimes see in a supermarket with the, you know, those flimsy leaves. That's, that's waste. But, uh, we, you know, we get amazing quality food. And um, so they realized that and they spoke to lots of charities, which we have in London, charities who have wraparound services, but who also have started helping people with food, spending money uh, which they to go to supermarkets and shops to buy food for their recipients. And so they couldn't spend that on um, their, their real work. And uh, Jane and Justin and, and some friends realize if we help them to get food, then they can f- focus more on those wraparound services, which at you know at the end of the day really help people. Food is a, is a plaster. Let's be honest. Yeah. Um, and you know we have on one side yeah. this, all this food which goes to waste. Um, so that's what we do. We we get food from nearly 400 suppliers at the moment, and that goes from a local corner shop to some restaurants to. Um, Ocado, HelloFresh, Sainsbury's, you know, many big 
producers as well. And we give that to almost a thousand charities every week here in London. Um, and, you know, some are small, some are big. We really try to reach those charities who have the most impact and helping them save some costs. Um, and then um, a year ago, we opened the kitchen in, in our new depot, which is in Poplar near Canary Wharf, where we cook out of surplus food yeah. Yeah, over 4,000 meals. The kitchen is built to do 5,000 meals a day and um, out of surplus food. And um, we did that for two reasons. First of all, that the ki- um, there's a lot of uh, food which we can't give to charities. So I give you an example. A little while ago, we had a pallet of barbecue sauce, which... Um, People, recipients love, you know, but th- this was 13 kilo bags yeah. of um, barbecue sauce, which no one can use, you know, okay. would fill up your fridge. But, you know, yeah. because we do big volume here, we can use it and it's all gone already. So um, that was one reason to save more surplus food. The second reason is that many people, for many reasons, can't cook for themselves. That doesn't mean they're homeless. That could be their living situation, their mental health. Um, you know, some haven't been taught the skills. So, uh, and, you know, for me, there's a third reason is that if you in, live in food insecurity and you have to scrape by, you know, for, in whatever way to cook for yourself, to get some food, how nice is it that we can give someone a, a cooked meal? The meals also, are, it's not about the numbers. They're very important, but the most important thing in the food we do, and, you know, that's for me very, I keep that up with my team all the time is that the meals are nutritious and delicious and that they're, you know, that they're packed properly, that the label is on its tray because because we don't have a menu, because we work with surplus food, we never know what we're going to cook tomorrow because we don't know what's coming in from the food suppliers. That's part of the fun, but also part of the challenge is the only thing I ask for my chef that it's uh, nutritious and delicious. And um, yeah, because that's so important. One thing, the, my biggest takeaway from, you know, from my early childhood, having those memories with, you know, around my grandparents' table to um, go being in Kelly, food connects. Food bring, Sharing a meal brings us closer together. Yeah. I can't take your problems away, but I can make you feel whole, uh, human again for those 10 minutes and you eat a meal. And, you know, he, what we do in the Felix Project we don't sit around the table with others. We, we're looking in to do things like that, and we do events, but generally we don't. But, you know, how powerful is it that when someone gets a meal which is cooked by us, that they feel human again and that they enjoy that meal, and for 10, 15 minutes they don't have to think about their daily worries? That, you know, for me that's very powerful because at the end of the day everything is related to each other. We're in this together. And... Then I believe it's and, and Jane and Justin who started this charity, they our, our mission and vision is that no one goes to bed hungry and no f- good food goes to waste. And it's staggering that in a town like London in you know 2022, that's still happening. So, um, yeah, if not getting worse, I mean, you're talking about food as something mm-hmm. transformational and uh. Almost yeah. in terms of alchemy, really, rather than it just being fuel. Some people view it as fuel. What do you, um, yeah, I wanted to ask. I would have thought that people are falling over themselves oh, we have to help lots you. Of support. 
the producers, the supermarkets, etc. Yeah, I would have thought that would be really easy to get the surplus food. Is that true? It's, you know, there's lots of people who do amazing work helping us. We we have a few thousand volunteers on our books. So, you know, the Felix Project has four depots all over London. We have 41 vans who are on the road twice a day, six days a week, which we have volunteer drivers for. We have uh, companies, for wealthy individuals, you know, uh, people who you know who don't have a lot all supporting us some give us money some give us resources otherwise give us their others give us their time so we are very well supported but you know the, um, we live in london you know there's a lot of need so there's a lot more to be done i'd have I, I don't have the stats in front of me now but you know we only touch a tiny amount of all the surplus in in this country um you know, to, we are part of the Fair Share Network, and together with all our partners, which are 18 organizations like the Felix Project, uh, a lot of them are a lot smaller, but we only touch 2% of all the food surplus in the UK. All other organizations who are not part of our network, but there's many really nice organizations, we only, together, we only touch 7% of all the f surplus food in this country. And still, you know, thousands of children in a place like London have an empty plate in front of them every day or every mealtime. So there's still a lot of work to do. And yeah, we work hard with an amazing team to um, improve on what we do. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary work. And everyone is a volunteer, are they, in the kitchen? Or do you have some paid no, staff? No, no, I have um, 15 staff and we have six uh, right. young people who are on an employability scheme. That's uh, three homeless people who we teaching how to become a chef, three local young people who, you know, had challenges in their life and trying to get them into the labor market by uh, giving them a job and, and, and skills, social skills, uh, hard and soft skills. Um, so, um, yeah, and then besides that, in order to do 5,000 meals, I need my staff, which on a rotor, so let's say 10 staff a day, plus um, uh, 50 volunteers in order to do 5,000 meals. It be, it's it's a lot of food, I tell you. I have, wow. I, you know, I'm sitting in an office upstairs now, and um, I can hear outside my team, which is one or two people every day, the whole day, the only thing they do is all the food which comes for the kitchen to um, take that out of the crates, take that out of the boxes and put it in the fridge so we could start prepping it for the meals. That's just two people doing that 10 hours a day. So it's wow. a lot of work. You know, in the first last three months, so the last quarter, um, well, I can add it up. In the first half year, so till the end of June, from the 1st of January, we used over 250 tons of food in order to cook those meals. <sighs> That's extraordinary. And this year, we will do more than a million meals from this kitchen. Oh, my goodness. If anyone wants to know about the Felix Project, it is thefelixproject.com. .org. Um, the website's yeah. fantastic. Sorry, .org. Why don't I just give out the wrong <laughs> information, Leon? Felixproject.org and go on the website and find out. What I'm, We're sort of going to wrap it up soon, but what I'm really struck by is the little boy who lay on his bed mm -hmm. wanting to have so much food he could eat and eat and eat. And the man who is in charge of all this food, more food than he could have ever dreamed of, and just wants to give it away. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's a nice insight. Um, it's lovely. I think... It's just uh, lovely. Yeah, I keep hearing my, my mom and my grandmother saying, young will sit eat, and, you know, extending that not just to friends or family, but to everyone. I You know, when I did Kelly... 
and I was working with refugees, I believe in a more open world and I don't believe in closed borders. But of course, not everyone agrees. Yeah. And that's absolutely fine. And I always said, I don't, I'm not here to change your political beliefs, but I just see people who need help for whatever reason. First of all, I, I'm a migrant myself. I came to London 22 years ago. I mean, I had been here before, but to start a business that was for economic reasons. And that's fine because I become, I come from the Netherlands and I can promise you, um, the toughest thing I ever seen in my life was the, the, the jungle, the camp in uh, Kelly, just, I don't know, hundred miles from here in London where I'm sitting now and on yeah. our doorstep. And, um, we can't help these people. You, no one would go there just to um, because they want to live in the UK and for economic reasons. Um, everyone, we all of us want a safe and a peaceful place to live. That's why I help those people. And that's the same now. Um, you know, and, yeah. you know, I tell you one thing, we, we in the Felix Project and, and many other organizations, the conversations we're having, I was at an event last night, is the looming, because we believe it hasn't even started yet, is the cost of living crisis. We're going to have some tough times ahead. That's all the signs we're getting. And, you know, we, no one has the answer how we're going to solve that financially for people who re will be really struggling. People, um, But, you know, we can see, I believe if we all do a little bit, then we can really support each other and no one needs to go hungry. Uh, I truly believe that. Uh, I'm with you. And we need, we are clearly in a time of change, which is uncomfortable for many and will be, yeah. continue to be uncomfortable for the majority yeah. without manifesting it. Um, and yeah, we need to change. Yeah. We need to change our value on food and life and how we treat each other and capitalism and commerce and what's important. Yeah, yeah, it's a big old shake-up, isn't it? Yeah, and for me, it's uh, what I learned in my journey in these 56 years is from that boy who was unhappy and felt not good enough and all those things and solving that by eating more is that, you know, as long as I'm happy on the inside and work on myself and find peace, then um, I, I can help others, but also I don't get too upset by the, the things happening around me, which I can't. I can only control what I can do something about. What I can't do anything about, you know, I have to let that go and focus on what I've learned is when you focus on, you know, the things you can do something about and do that, your impact is enormous. And it's like the, you know, the ripples on, on a, on a, in a lake when you, you know, when you drop the stone in the middle and the ripples keep going to the, all the way to the side and, you know, the, um, that ripples out a lot more than you think. So by do just doing what you're here to, meant to be doing, you have a huge yeah. impact on the world around you. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Leon, thank you so much. Before you go, the most difficult question of yeah. all, if you were going to an island, any island, and you were to take five foods with you, you do have a store cupboard, olive oil, salt and pepper, that kind of thing. What five foods would you take? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I haven't thought about that. Um, well, oh, you must have. well, I I read that once when I was a young chef from a, a, a very famous chef called Marco P. White, and he said, if you want to learn how to cook, don't buy a cookery book, but a good knife and a chopping board, and a good knife and a good pan. And I would take that first, a good knife, a chopping board, and a pan. 
Um, okay, so you're going to be foraging and killing everything that yeah, moves on the island. Yeah, yeah. well, I don't <laughs> eat meat, but um, yeah. No, no meat. Uh, maybe a book on foraging, because I don't know too much about that. That's something uh, I want to look. Made out of edible paper. Yeah. Okay, that's your first one. You've got to be able to eat it. Then what's number two? Um, which foods would I bring? I would bring some fermented foods um, because they keep mm-hmm. and they go well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're also good for your immune system. Um, mm-hmm. spy, a spice rack. Okay. Um, I don't eat a lot of salt, but you need a little bit of salt, I guess. And uh, You've got and that, a, but you can have an, a, another uh, so, special kind of salt. Yeah, so yes, so Himalayan or something like that. And I would bring yeah. in a, a, a stack of amazing raw chocolate because you need, you know, some comfort okay. food. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Um, it's a pleasure. It's, yeah, honestly, I, I could talk to you for hours and your story is inspirational. Thank you. And all your information and all the information for thefelixproject.org will be on our Instagram page and show notes, etc. Is there anything else that you'd like to say before we finish that you need to put out there? No, um, you know, if you feel inclined that like you said, you know, look at our website and, and you know, come and support us or support a local charity. Um, I think there's something all of us can do that doesn't have to be with the Felix Project. I think if we all do a little bit what whatever is in our remit, then um, we can create amazing change. It's not about the big steps. It's about the little steps you take every day. And um, um, so, you know, when you walk past someone who, who might sit on the street and ask you for something or you see people struggling, you know, don't just walk past them, at least acknowledge them. I learned that from a very wise yeah. man in India uh, who stepped past a very wealthy man as well, who stepped past uh, some uh, beggars and we couldn't believe it because he definitely, and he, you know, but well, one thing he did is he looked everyone in the eye and said, uh, no, thank you or not today. or And, you know, he acknowledged them and, I, re- I started doing the same because I can't help everyone. But um, yeah. And I remember my son once commenting on it. And what I learned from that is, you know, let's say, because it can, you know, COVID shown that it can happen to all of us, to all of us. You know, in the food Absolutely. banks, there was many, um, unfortunately, of course, many middle class double income people who had to use food banks in the last few years. And I think... It's about being being seen by others. I think that's the most important. When I was that young boy lying on my bed, I think I didn't feel seen. And of course, I was seen by my family, but I didn't see it myself. And, you know, people who have challenges, they want to be seen because there's so much stigma about it. And I think we can all change that, you know, just one step at a time. Yeah, absolutely. And just open up the conversation. Mm -hmm. Leon, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Love This Food Thing. If you'd like to reach me, I'm on Instagram at Love This Food Thing, or you can head to our website, lovethisfoodthing.com. Join our community. Everyone's welcome. Catch you in the next episode.